And welcome to Catholics Coast to Coast, where when you want to know what people are talking about when it comes to your faith and how can it affect you in growing in your own? Well, there's lots of conversations to be had, and it's all at Podcast Central at EWTN.com slash radio. I'm Ace McKay. As we begin our journey this week, we get to tell you about the latest member of our Podcast Central family with a podcast called Tangent. And Father Sam, along with Matt, are interviewing Father Vincent from the Archdiocese of St. Louis and talking about how Hollywood, whether they get it right or wrong, talking about exorcism and then how the exorcism prayer could actually be good for the church. We'll dive into Tangent here on this week's Catholics Coast to Coast. Welcome to the Tangent. My name is Matt Sparaza. I'm Father Sam Kachuba. Today we are joined by Father Vincent Lampert. Uh, Father Vince, you are a priest of the Archdiocese of Indianapolis, correct? Yes, I've been a priest since uh, June the 1st of 1991, so I'm in my 32nd year. Awesome. Great. Wow. Well, welcome to The Tangent. Thanks so much for, for making the time to, uh, to be with us. This is another one of our timely episodes, Matt. Uh, we don't, we, yes, we don't often is. get to do timely episodes. Usually our episodes, like, yeah. you can just air them anytime. But this one, really excited to have you on at this time of year uh, because, Father, you have the unique ministry of serving the church uh, as an exorcist. Yes, I have been appointed to that role by my bishop since uh, 2005. I'm now in my 18th year. So okay. I am the stably appointed wow. exorcist for Indianapolis. Indianapolis has always had a priest in this role. Even when it wow. fell out of practice in many other dioceses, Indianapolis has always had a designated exorcist. Hmm. Now, it's a role that's necessary, a ministry that's needed year-round. But I imagine that you probably get tired of, of getting questions around this time of October, you know, kind of like, oh, yeah, let's all talk about the horror movies and everything. So how can we how can we understand this as a ministry that the church offers and not just as a, a figure uh, at Halloween time or in, in horror movies. Right, or a Hollywood phase right. or <laughs> yeah. the lot. One of my favorite statements in regards to exorcism ministry is the line in Scripture in the book of Genesis when God says, let there be light. And for me, the ministry of exorcism is about casting the light of Jesus Christ onto people who have fallen into the darkness of the evil one. So even though it's October, Halloween is just around the corner, many people may be fascinated by the demonic and his darkness, but really the ministry of exorcism is about focusing on Jesus Christ and his light that he wants to shine into everyone's life. So the focus is always on what God wants to do and not necessarily on what the devil is trying to do. Why do you think it's so easy for us to focus more on what the, what the devil's trying to get us to do? I think in today's world, the devil's become almost a charismatic type of figure. You know, the demonic can play on a person's memory and imagination. If you look at the entertainment industry today, there's such a great fascination with the devil. There's so many movies out there right now that have just come out. You think of ones like Nefarious, The Pope's Exorcist, Exorcist Believer. It's now the 50th anniversary of the movie, The Exorcist. So people get caught up in all of that. And usually when they get caught up in that whole world of darkness, people are fascinated by all the theatrics of the devil. You know, the head spinning and pea soup flying and, <laughs> you know, bod bodies levitating. That can get anybody's attention. Mm -hmm. But in reality, again, the focus should always be on, on God and his power. 
when you when you're asked questions about this, even even just sitting here with you right now, I'm I'm noticing a, like a real calm about everything. But exorcism, I know, is is something that can get kids riled up. It can get any adult riled up too. It, it can be something that's that's it's it's intriguing, exciting, a little fearful. Um, I can remember countless times going in to talk to, especially middle school religious ed groups. And they've maybe just seen something like The Exorcist for the first time. Um, so they wonder, is it real? Can that happen to me? Um, and there's a certain like fascination, but even like a little bit of a fear. What what would happen? Like how how can this happen to me? And like, so you mean I could get possessed? Um, and there's there's a, a fear about it. And what I appreciate listening to you just this like nice calm demeanor. How do we answer those kinds of fears and that kind of energy level, emotion level with the truth and with that light that you're that you're speaking about bringing? You know, the devil was cast out of heaven, but he wasn't cast out of creation. God can still use the devil for his greater purposes. So even when people deal with extraordinary mm -hmm. demonic activity and the church does recognize four types, demonic infestation, the presence of evil, in a location or associated with an object, vexation, physical attacks, obsession, mental attacks, and then possession, whereby the devil or some other evil spirit would take control of a person's body, treating that body as if it were its own. The eyes to mm. see, the mouth to speak, the ears to hear, and so on. But everything the devil is doing, we can use to our advantage. Because an enemy will only attack at a point of weakness. And so if the devil allows us to identify a weakness in our spiritual armor, then we know where we need to put in some more effort to grow in holiness and virtue. So again, you know, the devil's not free to do whatever he wants. People should never put God and the devil on the same playing field. The devil is still a creature, very powerful and intellectual, but he can only do that which God permits him to do. So even in the, in the ministry of exorcism, one of the questions to ask would be, why is God permitting this? And ultimately, it would be for the betterment of the person to really help them to see the importance of faith and to grow in their own relationship with God. It's it's interesting that you say that it can be used to our advantage because I have I, I was actually just having this conversation with Father Sam yesterday in, in preparation for this interview of, well, I know, I know plenty of people, right? And, and one of the reasons that I was hoping we could even have this interview is that I have family members who, who don't believe, you know, in the entire like spiritual world, if you will, right? Like that's not a piece of their reality. Um, and stories are a good way to evangelize. And so the idea of using it to our advantage, I'm, I'm curious what your opinion is, but I think it's going to be yes, considering that you have a public ministry and also, you know, that you just said we can use these things to our, our advantage. Have you seen great, have you seen great conversion come from hearing stories of, of exorcism? Absolutely. I think that's one of the reasons why my bishop gave me permission to be public in the ministry. Many exorcists choose to remain anonymous. They don't want to be known, but I think it's a way of evangelizing. It's teaching people about the reality of evil but the, the devil operates on fear. And if we can really root fear yeah. out of our lives, then we take away one of the primary tools that the devil can use to try to control and manipulate us. So the more that people know about the devil, the reality of evil, 
And you're right. There's a lot of people out mm-hmm. there who would say they don't believe in any of this, that evil, if it does exist, is nothing more than humanity's inhumane treatment of one another. In other words, it's something of our own making, but certainly not personified in what the church teaches about the devil and these other fallen angels. As someone who's public in the ministry, I currently receive about 3,500 requests a year from people all over the United States and other parts of the world who are seeking help from the church. What's interesting about some of these stories, and I I got one recently from a, uh, a young lady in Australia who said that she had listened to one of the interviews that I gave, and she said she grew up with no faith. But it really inspired her to think about the role that God should be playing in her life. And she said she went out mm. to the local Catholic parish, she signed up for RCI classes, and she's looking forward to being received into the church at the Easter Vigil Mass next year. Wow. Wow. That's fantastic. When you're when you're doing I kinda love that we're using the devil's game against him. I just want to throw <laughs> that out there. I, I love it. Well that's you know, everything <laughs> the devil is doing, you know, I always tell people in an exorcism when the priest holds up a crucifix, why is that done? Because when Jesus is being crucified, the devil believes that it's his moment that he's won. But the moment of his perceived mm. victory is actually the moment of his defeat. Because then the devil realizes that everything that he was doing to lead Jesus up to the crucifixion was actually playing into God's hands. That's something, if you don't mind, I know we're called the tangent because we go in every (laughs) different direction, you know, like known to man. Um, Can you talk about that a little bit? The, the idea of the devil leading Jesus to the crucifixion? Absolutely. You know, I tell people that one of the things that's unique about Christianity is that it's not about our search for God. It's about God's search for us. If you go back to the the story of the fall of humanity, when Adam and Eve had sinned and they go and hide, God is the one who comes to the garden and says, Adam, where are you? Now, obviously, God knew where Adam was, but he's searching for him because he knows that he has sinned, and he wants to see if Adam will take accountability for his sinfulness. Of course, he blames the woman who then blames the serpent, and we've been playing Mm -hmm. the finger-pointing game ever since. But then Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. And I would suggest that when God cast them out of the garden, that that was a form of love and mercy. Because if Adam and Eve had approached the tree of life in the state of original sin, there would have been no hope for redemption. But God cast them out into the wilderness, into the desert. And then think about when Jesus begins his public ministry. He's baptized in the River Jordan by John the Baptist. And then he's driven by the Spirit into the desert, into the wilderness. And I would suggest the reason he goes there is in search of lost humanity. That the very mm-hmm. first one he has to contend with is the devil, the one who caused the fall of mm-hmm. humanity. But then Jesus overcomes the temptation that Adam and Eve had succumbed to. And then after that, Jesus goes and looks for lost humanity. Great accounts in mm-hmm. the Gospels, you know, the good shepherd who leaves the 99 and, and goes in search of the lost one. I would suggest the lost one is lost humanity. The woman who has 10 coins and loses one and sweeps the house diligently searching for it, that's God searching for lost humanity. So God is always the one who takes the first initiative in helping to restore us back to our right relationship to him. And I think the ministry of exorcism really is one of the tools 
that God is using to find lost humanity and again to restore them back mm-hmm. to their proper dignity. So when we talk about the ministry of exorcism um, and of, of the ministry of an exorcist, uh, we have the the ritual that the church provides, the prayer that affects this this incredible thing um, to drive out demons and to to conquer the power of of Satan. Um, but the way that the movies depict it, you know, I need an old priest and a young priest, and that seems sufficient. Like as as long <laughs> as we've got those two things, that that's enough. Um, or you'll even see in and popular shows like on TV, they'll they'll talk about oh this this person we thought that they were possessed. So my my mother and and a couple of her friends got together to perform an exorcism, and um, so you're, you're you're sort of sometimes the a, a TV show might present it as uh, this is what very credulous people who are sort of irrational in their faith might look for or this is something that's right. that's kind of mysterious but there's certain requirements so an old priest and a young priest are required and and that's about it um, <laughs> clearly we know that there that there's much more so can you walk us through what this ministry looks like what it really is what's what's actually needs yeah. to take place in order for this to be done in in such a way that uh, we keep in mind that it's, this is not just a show, this is not something, this is something that's actually really serious mm-hmm. and at the same time very beautiful. You know, exorcism at its very core is a prayer. It's a prayer that's directed to God or a command given to demons to help that person to be restored to a relationship with God. We might even say that in an exorcism, the devil is commanded to return that which he has stolen, namely a person created in the image and likeness of God. So one of the main things that all of our listeners should remember is that it's a prayer. It really is praying for people. And, you know, we're not saved by any formula. We're saved by a person, and that person's name is Jesus Christ. You know, even in an exorcism, Jesus is not a bystander. He's the main actor. And then we rely on the power and the authority that Christ has given to the church and to the church's ministers. In fact, the bishop in the diocese, he is the exorcist. You think of Luke's gospel, chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus sends the 12 out, and he gives them the authority over all unclean spirits. And as Catholics, we know that the bishops are the successors to the apostles, so they have that authority, and then they can bestow that authority on one or more of their priests asking them to do this ministry in their name. But really, again, at its core, it's a prayer. You know, when I was appointed back in 2005, I became one of only about 12 stably exorcists in the United States. Hmm. And so the church says the best way to learn the ministry is through the apprenticeship model. It's one thing to be able to go and read and learn about everything the church teaches about the reality of evil and the devil, it's another thing to have practical application. So I, I was fortunate to be in Rome in the early part of 2006 for three months, and I mm. found a Franciscan priest who allowed me to mentor under him. His name was Father Carmine de Philippus. He, along with Father Gabriel Amorth, who's well-known, the former chief exorcist in Rome, sure. they were both trained by a passionist priest, Father Candido Amentini who did exorcisms at the Holy Stairs in Rome. So it's the church located near the Basilica of St. John Lateran. And then Father Carmine permitted me to sit in on 40 exorcisms that he performed during the three months that I was in Rome. 
and that allowed me to learn firsthand the way to minister to people who were up against the forces of evil and who were seeking the help of the church. Forty exorcisms in three months. And he actually, he did more than that. Those are just the ones that I set in on. I would go about two to three days a week to meet with him, but he literally did them every day. The first day I arrived at his church, he was pastor of St. Lawrence outside the walls, where the relics of St. Lawrence the deacon are. Mm -hmm. There would always be about 50 people in the courtyard waiting to see him. Some had appointments, some did not. Some were already even manifesting the demonic in the courtyard as they were waiting to see him. So so what does that mean, manifesting the de- demonic? You know, look, the signs of the demonic would be uh, eyes rolled in the back of the head, foaming at the mouth, growling, snarling, uh, a very deep authoritative voice, bodily contortions, bodies dropping to the ground right. and slithering like a snake across the floor. I witnessed levitation. I mean, <laughs> let your imagination run wild. Think of these movies that we've seen. Right. All of those things are really true. They do happen. I think where, I was going to say where Hollywood gets it wrong is they're focusing on these theatrics of the devil rather than focusing on God. But all of these things that we see, Mm. they're true. They do happen. Now, if somebody wants to have, believes that they are are possessed, I mean, how does somebody end up sitting in the courtyard waiting for an exorcist to to come and help them? (laughs) Like how 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 does the person who is possessed get to that point? Like they have an appointment they to go and see somebody. They take an airplane. Yeah. <laughs> they have an appointment to go and see somebody for this. Um, how how does it get to that point that they've, if they're possessed or if they're if they're dealing with this, what's the what's the the pull and the push and the the give and the take there? I think a lot of it depends on the country in which one comes from. You think here in the United States mm-hmm. we're more skeptic, you know, we're skeptics. Maybe we don't believe in the reality of evil. We think that somebody is just suffering from a mental health issue, and if they just get the right mental health care or medication, they'll be fine. But other parts of the world, people are more readily to accept the possibility that what one is suffering from may be due to a spiritual cause. So whether that's, you know, in Italy, you know, in Italy, there are 300 appointed exorcists. Poland has 300. I was in South Africa a few years ago where they didn't really have any. But again, people accept the possibility that it's not just something mental or physical, but it could be a spiritual cause. So each country can kind of put together its own protocol. Here in the United States, people are required to have some type of a mental health assessment. And it isn't because the church doesn't believe them. But if one is suffering from the demonic, they need to be in a good mental state. Kind of that edge needs to be taken off before they go mm-hmm. through the rite of the church. They need to have a physical examination by a medical doctor to rule out any medical explanation for what they're dealing with. I would do an intake questionnaire with the person trying to determine if this is demonic. What was the entry point? What did the person do either directly or indirectly? that permitted the demon to afflict them. I would look for four possible signs of demonic possession that the church has identified, the ability to speak and understand languages otherwise unknown to the individual, having superhuman strength, having elevated perception, knowledge about things that that person should not otherwise know, 
and then a very negative reaction to anything of a sacred nature, such as being blessed with holy water or being shown a crucifix. And then the final step of the protocol would be to help the person normalize their relationship with God. I would even suggest that casting the demon out is the easy part. The harder part is to mm-hmm. convince someone that they need to live in a right relationship with God. Does that Do those four always happen? Not necessarily all those four. Those can be four possible signs because they reflect right. okay. an angelic nature, even one that's fallen, because the belief right. is that when God created the angelic world, he gave them infused knowledge. They didn't have to learn anything. And so by talking to somebody, and I know that they don't speak Greek or Latin, for example, and then all of a sudden that language comes out of the person's mouth, that would give me kind of the moral certitude, meaning beyond a doubt, I know this is no longer that person yeah. but a demon. Hmm. You say that in the United States, there's a kind of a standard of a, a psychological uh, intervention. Is that the case everywhere, or is that just kind of particular to the way we would do it in the United States? I think that's particular to the way that we do it. I've been in other okay. countries of the world, and you know, people will always say, well, the fact that you believe in these spiritual creatures puts you in the minority. But the reality is that there are more people on the planet that believe in angelic creatures, good and fallen, than those who do not. Even though that may be the more, uh, I don't know, dominant mentality here in the United States, that's certainly not true across the world. Is it necessary every time somebody uh, approaches you, for example, to have permission from the bishop to to do the exorcism? I know that they'll talk about uh, if an exorcism, if somebody believes that they're possessed, the bishop has to have some kind of an investigation into it to find out, is this person really possessed? And then uh, the priest who's going to do the exorcism has to get permission. But if you're stably appointed as the exorcist, is that still necessary? What's the proper protocol? That will be determined by each bishop. So the bishops that I've worked under you know, I was appointed by Archbishop Daniel Beekline back in 2005. Ironically, he was the uh, former rector of St. Meinrad College in southern Indiana, operated by the Benedictine monks. So he was a Benedictine monk who became my archbishop. We knew one another, which is why I think he selected me to take on this role, because in 2005, the exorcist in Indianapolis passed away. I was reappointed by um, now Cardinal Joseph Tobin, who's the Archbishop in Newark, and now by Archbishop Charles Thompson, the current Archbishop of Indianapolis. But all three of those bishops that I've worked under have told me that I did not need their permission to do an exorcism, that if Mm -hmm. I believe that it needed to be done, then I had their complete trust and confidence to do whatever Mm -hmm. I believe was necessary to help this person. So th- this whole conversation thus far has been reminding me of this prayer called Radiating Christ. The The way the prayer starts is, Dear Jesus, help me to spread your fragrance everywhere I go. Flood my soul with your spirit and life. Penetrate and possess my whole being so utterly that all my life may only be a radiance of yours. Um, and I know that I spoke to Father Joseph because that language, I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's, that's language I only know you know, in the context of exorcism. Um, and so I just wanted your take on that that language in a prayer to God. To me, in that prayer, to be possessed means to live within the realm of God. Because strictly speaking, if somebody is possessed, 
you know, a, a truly spiritual creature, as St. Thomas Aquinas would tell us, is not contained by space, it contains the space. Mm-hmm. So if somebody is possessed, it literally isn't that the demon is inside of that person per se, but that the demon is mm-hmm. containing that person. And an exorcism prayer would break that containment, taking the person from the realm mm-hmm. of the evil one, but then placing them within the realm of God. So again, in that prayer, I think the request is being asked to always live in the realm of God. Yeah, I like that prayer a lot. I I, I, I mean, just admittedly, you know, I think that it's a... I guess I always looked at it like that's that's the equivalent to like fill me with the Holy Spirit, basically. Yeah, and that notion of the fragrance of Christ, what is that? Because it makes me think that one of the uh, signs of demonic possession is a very horrible stench. And whenever a demon is present, the stench is like, I always tell people, think of that raccoon that's been sitting by the side of the road for like two weeks during the heat of summer and you drive by, it doesn't smell good. That doesn't even come close to the stench of a demon. But then you think of the fragrance really? of Christ and radiating his love and all of that. You know, that's just something wonderful to, to uh, I don't know, hold on to. And what's really nice about that prayer, too, it makes me think of that line again about let there be light. Again, we're turning lights on. The devil wants to turn the lights off. I always say that, you know, the devil's like a cockroach. If you go into a room where there are bugs and you turn on a light, they scurry for every dark you know, crack and crevice. And in an exorcism, the church is throwing the light of Christ onto these demons who are possessing the person. And when that happens, they will scurry and flee, trying to get back into the darkness. As you're mentioning the the numbers over the course of three months, you know, 40 that you sat in on and, and observed, and then many more happening uh, throughout the week. Uh, that sounds like an, an awful lot. Mm-hmm. And so th- it, it kind of raises for me that question of, uh, were these people who were, who were coming back again and again, you'll, you'll hear stories with exorcisms of this one took a long time. It had to happen over the course of several weeks or mm. several days. Um, others it's, I went to see the exorcist and I was, I was liberated or I, I was, I was helped and I, I was able to, to move forward. So when you're, when you're looking at these cases and, and the different time frames, what does it look like? Uh, it's really different for each person. It could depend on the severity of the possession. You know, there is a hierarchy in the demonic world just as much as there is a hierarchy in the angelic world. So we think of the nine choirs of angels, you know, the, the seraphim and the cherubim and the thrones, the dominations, the virtues, the powers, the principalities, the archangels and the angels. When one third of the angelic choir fell, they fell from all nine choirs. So there is a hierarchy in the demonic world. And certainly these fallen angels now refer to the devil himself as their chief. So depending on the severity of the possession, You know, if it's kind of a weaker demon, they're always quick to go. If one is more dominant, I did an exorcism one time, for example, when the demon told me its name was Leviathan, a a demon mentioned in the Bible, the great sea monster, and it said it wasn't going anywhere because it had a right to be there. So demons will try to claim some right 
that they believe that they have. Of course, everything is just a bunch of lies and, and whatnot. Some of it could depend on if the person is still giving the devil a foothold in their life. You know, if they're not doing everything that I told them that they need to do, then the, de the demonic can use that as a way to kind of continue to have a hook in that person. Hmm. Maybe we could go a little then like a, a timeline. If we were to try to go chronologically, so somebody uh, is, who experiences uh, some kind of demonic activity in their life, um, where's that come from? And then what is it that gets them to see you or to see an exorcist? And then the process from their, their first meeting with you on. Mm -hmm. what, what, what does that whole uh, spectrum end up looking like? The most important thing to remember is that the, the demonic doesn't have any power over us that we don't give to it, either directly or indirectly. Because the reality is we don't have to do anything extraordinary to defeat the devil. It's the very ordinary aspects of our faith that will always keep the devil at bay. So we go to Mass, we pray, we read the Bible, we celebrate the sacramental life of the Church, we know and live out our faith. We're doing these things, the devil's already on the run. Well, the signs of demonic manifestation and possession, helping to make sense of that, kind of reminds me of our friends at the spirit world. Uh, but that's Tangent. You can find out more about their podcast as a new member to Podcast Central. Just go to EWTN.com slash radio and to make sure you don't miss anything in the future. I'm Ace McCain. We're going to take a quick break, but when Catholics Coast to Coast comes back, we're going to join just a guy in the pew as he is going to help us to understand how do we get the marriage we want from the marriage we have? And we'll start that conversation next on this week's Catholics Coast to Coast. The destination for great Catholic audio programming is EWTN Podcast Central, featuring the best of EWTN radio, as well as faith-filled podcasts from our friends and affiliates across the nation, all in one place, all free. If it's central to the faith, you can find it on EWTN Podcast Central. It's like podcast heaven. Visit EWTN.com slash radio slash podcasts today. Well, welcome back to The Pew, everybody. I am your host, John Edwards, and I'm excited this week for this episode because I have a special guest in the studio. It's a very dear friend of mine. It's been a friend of mine for years. In fact, he was one of the guys that helped me get going in ministry, that really encouraged me in the beginning. Uh, he's been on our show before, but he's in town this week uh, speaking at one of the local parishes and also doing some work for uh, a company he works for too, uh, Communio. But, I mean, I'm so excited to welcome my friend here, especially on this, this, this uh, special feast day we have. So without further ado, I won't keep you guys in suspense anymore. I want to welcome to the show and to the studio my good friend Damon Owens. My man. Yeah, man. It's good to be with you. No, it's my <laughs> gift, especially on this great feast day, but yeah. any day would have been a gift. Yeah, the theology of the body. So like, how did you how did you stumble across that? I mean, you just looked down on the sidewalk one day and there was the theology of the body? Or? No, like like 95% of everybody in the theology of the body was Christopher West's sure. story, right? So yeah, sure. he's in Pennsylvania. I was in northern New Jersey, and I had been the NFP coordinator for the Archdiocese of Newark. Yeah. I had been speaking, like I said, pre-Canada and NFP, and I was you know, doing some work with some you know, more national, like J Dr. Janet Smith, mm -hmm. um, Father Richard Hogan, God rest his soul. You know, and a lot of pro-life work. So there was like, I could see there was a there was a world there, but it was never something I was like, I want to be a Catholic speaker. There was really, in my world, there was no such thing. Sure. Um, 
even Christopher was just coming onto the scene, mm-hmm. maybe a few years. So I was given a talk at, um, I think it was a youth event at Seton Hall, and it was a mixture of, you know, Catholics and then students, and, you know, it was kind of sure. like, and afterwards, this kid came up by and was like, man, you're awesome. You sound just like Christopher West. And I was like, okay, thanks. I don't, I don't know who that is. And yeah, he, like- <laughs> he handed me a cassette tape. That ages me, right? Handed me a cassette tape. It was like it was naked without shame. He was like, oh, you listen to this, man. Listen to this. And it sat in my car for like three months, right? Because uh-huh. I was just, not because I, it was, just like, it was literally on like the floor. Sure, <laughs> yeah. And I was driving down, Jersey folks, we know, Route 280 uh-huh. between West Orange and Newark. Okay. And I looked down there and I was driving. I just reached down and I picked up the tape. I put it into the car and, and I listened. And as God is my witness, I had to pull the car over mm. because... This man did in about nine minutes what I know, having done it for so many years, I mean, it would have taken me an hour. Yeah. And he did it more compellingly. Wow. So the whole framework of this theology of the body, which I had no idea, I never heard the phrase before, never heard him before. Sure. But it's the same subject matter about the stewardship. And I have been using classic humanity and, mm-hmm. you know, unpacking how that lives personally. And it's a long arc. You know, sure, from that. Sure. So, if you, folks, you don't really recommend, you know, the, the contraception question in the 90s is equivalent to the gender question now. Of today. Yeah. Hot. I sure. mean, just bringing it up, people would, you know, like, it's not like that in all anymore. Yeah, right? Stay it's, out of my bedroom, stay out of my and, business, and, stay and, out of, yeah. But violently, like, yeah. you know, why are you bringing this up in marriage prep? So, it was, it was a navigating turbulent waters, and Melanie and I really were gifted to be able to speak to our peers at the mm-hmm. time and enter into that. So when I heard him do that nine minute, you know, 10 minute max, I was like, I, I need to learn this. And he was dropping words that I just didn't sure. you know, connect before. So that was really the start of it. And I, I went to find that book and I went to, um, I was just starting a marriage ministry. I remember starting a NFP ministry because okay. yeah. I'm trying to figure out how to support the family and build the first, my first nonprofit, New Jersey Natural Family Planning Association. Sure. <laughs> so you know, a little bit of corporate, a little bit of... And all the prestige. It's all the prestige. Exactly. And all the money. That's exactly right. what that is. And my idea was I'm going to get all five family life directors in the state. We're going to have a single unified you know, source with multiple programs. And I was going to make something yeah. professional. Yeah, that didn't work. But <laughs> it did get into the marriage prep world. But I wanted to get uh, a big splash event. So I'm thinking, all right, I need a big name. I need people to show up. You know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, let me call this Christopher West guy. Mm-hmm. And I talked to his uh, assistant, and ended up being one of my good friends, Janine. Okay, yeah. Here's Janine. And she was like, uh, and she said, when do you want to do it? It was like August. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah. I said, I'm thinking like, you know, maybe 19th of September. She's like, of this year? <laughs> And I was like, yeah, what are we talking about? Yeah. Well, he's booked like 17 months out. I looked at the phone like, he's got booking events out for the next 17 months? Wow. Now, remember, this is before there was even this idea of, of lay Catholic speakers. Sure, yeah. You get your priests. You might you get, you know, there might be Matthew Kelly. There might have been like a Mary Beth Bonacci. There might have yeah. been, you know. But there was no such thing as as this. So I'm like, if, he's, if there's a market... So I had all kind of thoughts going. Sure, through. yeah. Anyway, I did what I usually do and just kept pressing and and got him. Yeah, I got him. I, we finagled that time and a day. Sure. And, and it and and what's beautiful is that night, we had over five hundred people with like three weeks' notice, showing up at Seton Hall University, mm-hmm. and to this day I hear from people in that New Jersey area there must be dozens or at least a dozen apostolates and ministries that started from that night. Wow. Holy Spirit showed. Up and the people there, which Christopher just 
killed it. I mean, just knocked it out of the park. Sure. Me too. I'm sitting there just like, this is a myth. First time I met him, first time I heard yeah. the full theology, the body that way. And that night was the start for so much in that New Jersey, New York area. So it was one of those Holy Spirit nights. Oh, I bet, man. He, he's phenomenal. I mean, I, I had the, I've had the blessing to work with him and with Bill Donahue and with you. And you all bring such a different flavor and gift to the same yeah. teaching, you know. And it's, it's just a, a testament to, again, the impact of John Paul II and, and, and the work. I mean, for me, I remember the first time I ever heard Theology of the Body was when I was up with Chris Cope and mm. those guys in um, Cardinal Studios yes. and they were doing the Rise thing and met Bill Donahue and everybody kept throwing this Theology of the Body thing around. I'm like, I don't, what does that mean? Like, a theology <laughs> of whose body? Like, oh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, right. Whose body are we talking about? Like, is there like a, <laughs> the body. Is there, is there like a dummy going to be rolled in here? We're going to have pointing out things. And, and so uh, yeah, I asked Bill probably one night about it and and he was telling me all this stuff, and I was my head felt like it was going to explode. Yeah, because it was just so much, you yeah. know. And and I remember asking him. I said, "Well, what, what, like, sum it up for somebody who's not super intelligent, you know?" And he <laughs> said, "Be a gift." Yeah. Is what he said. It's still true. Yeah, that's it's be a gift. Bill, he got it. Yeah, in every way, and and so that's what had me start researching it. I, I started first going to other people that had researched it, like you and and Christopher's got you know tons of books. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jason Everett's had some mm-hmm. theology, of the body for beginners, and uh, I just I fell in love with it. Yeah. And honestly, the same thing you're talking about with Melanie, like it started to change my relationship with Angela yeah. too, because. I had been someone that was Protestant, and you know, we I came into the church and 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 wasn't fully coming to the church for the right reasons. I was coming in to marry her, and it's a great reason. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Why are you here? I want to marry her. You know, that was it. Welcome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just come the next eight months, and you're in. Yeah. But um, you know, all those things happen. But but it wasn't until the theology of the body where I started really thinking about sexuality and, and the way we interacted that way. Um, started seeing places where I was using. Uh, instead of loving, mm-hmm. uh, and it just it blows your mind because you sit there as a guy or, or even as, as a woman, I'm sure too, and you wonder why you're in the fights you're in or the arguments you're in or there's always a tension and and until you start to open up the beauty of that work, it's hard to understand that, right? It's just, and I think yeah. so many people are lost in that. Why can we not get along? Why can we not communicate? Mm-hmm. Why do we keep hurting each other? All those things. You nailed it. I mean, this is this is sort of the beauty way. It never gets old. But yeah. I think the part of the first of all, the power in it is mm-hmm. what John Paul's goal in it, and he succeeded, was to give what he called an, an adequate, a full anthropology, like mm-hmm. the, the fullest truth of the human person. Yeah. Right. And in that truth, you then be able to have a frame, a vocabulary, a um, an approach to understand real human experiences. Yeah. So and this is this is important. I actually said this in my prep class this morning, right? Okay. <laughs> where where we have experiences of things, and they're there. When we have no idea what they mean. They have a certain affect effect on our affect, right? They make yeah, us feel sure. good, right? But it's an experience. Then we're we're wired to find meaning in those experiences. Yeah. And we try to think of everything that we know, everything that we've seen, everything that, that to try to make sense of a of a real experience. Mm-hmm. And that calls into question authorities. It could be, you know, medical authorities, science authorities, theological, church. It could be, you know, subject matter experts. It could be ourselves. But what it does is when we search for the meaning, like everything comes together to try to figure that out. Yeah. The intellect, the memory, imagination, uh, learning. It's, it's a very human thing. Well, what the theology of the body offers, and I think why it has taken off so quickly, so so strongly, is that it gives a framework, a truest framework of human experiences that we've all had. 
yeah. of being human, having a body, having senses, see, smell, hear, taste, touch, of being male, of falling in love, of being hurt, of being disappointed, of being a son, of being you know yeah. a brother, and all these things carry with it these questions about identity, about those relationships, and about reasons why we're here, like our mission. Yeah. And when John Paul dropped this, he didn't drop this as some academic exercise. He dropped it to say, and, and you read it, and it's very propositional. He's like, well, mm-hmm. could this not be? If this brings joy, authentic joy, not just delight, not just pleasure, but brings joy, that must affirm a truth about the human person. Mm-hmm. And then he ties it directly to Christ's own words, right? Yeah. An origin, a history, and a destiny. And it all feeds into, you know, these long-standing truths of the church, like Christ is, he is, he is the perfect man. Mm-hmm. He's humanity and perfection, and he is God. Yeah. So fully God and full humanity means that when Christ acts, he reveals who he is. Mm-hmm. Right? The, the, with him, there's no, there's no separation. There's a distinction, but not separation between what he does and who he is. Yeah. That's why we say, look what he does and do what he does. Mm-hmm. And then we who want to become fully human as Damon, I follow and I act like Christ, and I become not only more like him, but I become more me. Sure. So all that is in there which says, yeah, but what does it mean to love? What does it mean, even that loaded statement that you, that Bill and you just summarized, be a gift? Yeah. That's loaded. Yeah. <laughs> because it, it gets in questions about, can you really become something? Yeah. What is gift? Is it just this initiative, like, or is it something about we receive? And there's a whole just pondering. There's a whole reflection that gets back to real experiences that we've had yeah. and saying, that must be true because that brought me joy, yeah. right? Or that really, really hurt me. So there must be something about that was either missing, something that was disordered, something that was, you know, but we do that because we've had the experience. Yeah. Now, I think there's going to come a time, and we might be in there now, where the, the language and vocabulary of a theology of the body about mutual self-gift, the reciprocal gift, about um, being made for our own sake and following the, or the origin, history, destiny, you know, that the same. We're getting to the point now where it's so baked into sacramental preparation sure. to even understanding the sacraments and reading the scriptures that I'm, I'm curious to see how the, the new effect that it's going to have on a generation, right? Where you can learn this, it can be part of your original unpacking of your experiences. Again, sure. Because when, when it came out, you know, more popularly, you know, in the 2000s and stuff, it all came to us broken folks. Sure. Right? <laughs> so we're using it like a bomb to figure out, like, you know, why am I divorced? Sure. You know, why am I unhappy and frustrated in my marriage? Why am I not married? Yeah. Why, you know, am I broken in my sexual, you know, decisions? Yeah. So that was what it came, it came on to, like the bomb, to try to figure out a whole bunch of adult experiences. But I just wonder, like, as you start to make that part of, standard human formation yeah what's that going to do for a generation that that you know there's still be brokenness but i think having that framework early is going to affect yeah in a different way well and it's it's baked in now like you're saying i mean it's it's just this isn't theology of body this is catholicism yes right i yes. mean just like that cup of cappuccino angela made you i mean somebody 50 years ago would have said what is this yeah. right like 
this is different. It's not black coffee. It's not whatever. Ignorant but, rubes. Yeah, that's right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. They also save twelve dollars. But <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but at the end of the day, like everybody now is like, oh, this is just coffee. This is just coffee. It's what it is. And that's exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Is is it's just become such a natural part of the progression of where people are, and that's why I love going to like Steubenville and Seek and all those things because these young people are aching for this stuff. Yeah. I did an event yesterday in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. It was mm-hmm. the first uh, men's conference they put on. It was actually a guy that was from here, and he moved down there, and they had nothing for men. And it was their first day doing it. I did the whole thing. It was just me. Nice. And uh, it was 180 men. Nice. And a lot of them young. It was right there on the University of Southern Miss campus. Uh, shout out to all the people that were there, hey. by the way. Um, but a lot of them were young, and they got out. One of them recognized me or something. He'd been to see. He could saw me and came up, and we were talking the night before when I got there. And he was just – everything was about – everything they were saying was theology of the body. Yeah. But never once did you hear the phrase theology of the body. Yeah. It was just who they were trying to be and how they were trying to respect one another and, and the women that were involved and all of these things. And, and for me, that's – I think that's why it's so important for men. You know, we have men and women that listen to the show, but it's predominantly men. Mm. And one of the things that we get the most in emails and questions about is, how do I stop being so selfish? Mm. You know, why does my life, and another one is, why does my wife not want to make love to me? Why does my wife Mm. never want to go to bed with me? Mm. And those things are pretty intertwined. Sure. You know, because most of the times when I looked back, I was always thinking, why am I not getting what I need Mm -hmm. instead of, okay, I'm probably not getting what I need because I'm not giving what she needs, mm. right? And some of those things. And so I, I don't know, Damien, like we live in a crazy world now where marriage has become a, a, a we'll see instead of an I do, mm. you know? Mm. And, and, and that's even mm. if they get to the altar in the first place. You know, we're living in this climate of gender dysphoria you mentioned and, and all these pronouns, you can't even keep up with them and all this stuff. And where do you think all this falls now? Because you, here you are a champion for marriage. I mean, mm-hmm. your whole ministry is about that. All the ministry you've been in and now the one that you've partnered with in Communio, yeah. you know, which I want you to share about those things in a little bit. But, I mean, it seems like everything right now is a, a direct attack on the family and marriage and love. And the way that God chose to show his love to the world is the family. So what are your thoughts there? In this, Because I know people writing all the time about kids that are being led astray by this, kids that have no intention of getting married. All of these things now that were were not even a thought, you know, twenty years ago. That's right. That's right. Or if they were, it was considered just an outlier. We didn't sure. give it pain and, and, and no, never mind. But this is this is an, I'm all in on this, and yeah. and it's it's come about you know, almost three decades now of, yeah. of being all in here. So this is it really and seeing how it's changed culturally, how it's changed to live out a, a marriage and a faith that mm-hmm. you know that we have, but also of proclaiming it you yeah. know, in a culture like this. So I, I kind of grabbing onto different groups and areas and initiatives because they all are really addressing the same issue. Mm-hmm. You know, I look at broadly the theology of the body is about getting to the what and the why of why marriage is so important, mm-hmm. uh, why God created in the beginning before the church, before government, sure. before anything, right? Yeah. It's a human institution he created from the beginning as the the primary place where humans become fully human. Yeah, I mean, let's let's just name it what it is. And even on this side of sin— uh, marriage carries with it that that primordial power, dignity, value, worth, the ability to form us to become men, yeah. to perform to, to women to become women. But it's a human formation, and it is a school. That's why the, our faith calls it a school of love, mm-hmm. marriage, and the family. And we're learning how to love. We're learning the the experience of being loved. And then what to do with that as the as initiating the gift and and how what it looks like as a husband 
as a father, as a brother, as a son. And Communio has been a great gift because this year working with them has added a real understanding of what's happening in the culture mm-hmm. and how every parish can have a more impactful role. In fact, have an impact on it. Because right now parishes don't have impact yeah. when it comes to relationship ministry. We need to come to that bare fact. Yeah. Um, one of the statistics that we've our research has shown is that rightfully so, the average I'm sorry, for the last few years, four to eight four to six billion dollars, four to six billion dollars has been spent every year on youth ministry. Wow. No complaints whatsoever, sure. right? We're trying to save, we see well decision for Christ at thirteen, you yeah. know, the, got it. The average church in America only spends zero dollars. Eighty five percent of churches in America spend zero dollars on relationships. And this is mission. churches. This isn't just parishes. This, this is, is Catholic, Christian, non-denominational, you yeah. know, mainline Protestant. The Christian church experience is not one that's focusing on investing mm-hmm. in relational ministry. And what I mean by that is for singles, marriage preparation, mm-hmm. marriage enrichment, and marriages in crisis. That's what we call a communio, our full circle. Yeah. Because you got it. It's all connected. Right, mm-hmm. it's a single sure. marriage prep, marriage enrichment, marriages in crisis, and the church should be the place where not just parishioners but the neighborhood goes to as a place for help, for strength, for encouragement, for growth, mm-hmm. and that should, that's like the, one of the core competencies of of Christianity. Yeah, we know what a human person is, and we know how we flourish. Sure, and that God's given us marriage, and we help you to grow and flourish in that, regardless of the laws, regardless of what's permitted, permitted or redefined. Mm-hmm. The church is always, and yet we don't invest at all. Yeah. So our work at Communio is about helping any individual church who is already on mission for marriage to do what probably no church they've seen do. Yeah. To help the one in five couples in the pew who self-describe as struggling in their marriage, one in five. Yeah, that doesn't surprise In the pew, me. so they're showing up at mass, yeah. right? That's the sort of an in-reach that we speak to. The other is the outreach, where every church, every parish has got houses across the street, walking distance, mm-hmm. and a fraction of them are actually parishioners. Yeah. Right? Now, also, it's different down in the south here, right? You're, you're like more dense, you know, with, yeah. with that. But even up like in the northeast, where there's a heavy Catholic population or whatever, actually, it doesn't really matter. If there's a, a house, a home across the street from your parish, yeah. and they're married, they need help. Sure. <laughs> so before the full ascent to the faith, what if that, that brick-and-mortar church was a haven for skill-based marriage work that, did, again, didn't require ascent to the faith yet, yeah. but really is just about living the truth of marriage because we know what the truth is about male and female. Yeah. So we helped to build that as part of it to reach people and then to leverage what you and I know. We have some of the best resources that have ever been produced in the history of Catholicism. Wow. I mean, you look at the Ascension Press and the Word on Fire and Augustine Institute and these organizations, even small apostolates, and we've got these online resources and workbooks. Yeah. and We've got so much content available. It's, it's amazing. And for each one of them, the problem, even the big ones, how do we get people in front of this? Yeah, how do we get in front right? of people? Yeah, we spend all the money, we can do that. But yep. And we can show the diocese, we go to a parish, and then yeah. we get there and everything just goes into a black hole. Yeah. Right? Make a new flyer. You know, yeah, make sure make right. sure Father announces at the end of Mass. And that's put, right. We have the same, like, in-reach outreach that never work. Yeah. You get the same 25 people to show up. Yep. So there's a—and it's not just a technical marketing problem. It is an evangelization problem. Mm-hmm. It's a question about how we know, have the competence to bring new people in and to serve them where they need to be served. Yeah. So that aspect of the marriage work has been such a beautiful complement to— my previous content work. Sure. Where once you get them there, we've got the content. We can speak to the needs, felt needs, 
real needs, yeah. you know, latent needs, you know, obvious needs. Like when somebody's in crisis, you know what they need. Yeah, I'm sure. Most couples don't know what they need. It's like it's like an iceberg. Yeah. You know, 90% of it is under the water. And then they feel embarrassed to even talk to anybody because they have to admit that they have exactly. a problem. Exactly. Right? Then everybody's going to think we're not perfect. Oh, and, I'm a lector. I'm, yeah. a, I'm a prep teacher. I'm, yeah. I'm you know, I'm, I'm a deacon. Uh, you know, you mentioned uh, earlier the pictures on the wall behind me and Dr. Bob shoots, and I'll never forget a couple of years ago, you and I have gotten really close, and Good I'm man. actually going to work with them uh, yeah. starting next year, leading me men's healing conferences with oh, Paul George. Oh, praise God. Yeah, so Bob asked me to do That's that. That's going to really, transform everybody. Oh, man, I, I hope it transforms me. Oh, no, it will. No, it will. <laughs> but he's, uh, yeah, he's become a good friend, and I remember a couple of years ago, Angela and I, had, and Angela's in here, I mean, she's always in here, so um, she can throw something at me if she wants me to be quiet, <laughs> but but uh, we we had run into one of those periods in your marriage where you just, it's like no matter what you say or you do, you're you're wrong, you know, you're, you're, you're up against each other. That was it's us, like, 2013. Yeah, yeah. 2013 yeah. was our year. Yep. Yeah, it's like you both have sandpaper on and you're just constantly mm. rubbing up against each other. But I, I called Bob because we had been talking and, and gotten to know each other and and I told him, I said, I'm really struggling, and I, I'm just embarrassed about it. I don't know who to talk to. Here I am, this guy on ministry, talking every week yep. to on the on the you know show about how to have a good marriage and be a good man, and I'm failing at it myself. And I said, Bob, I'm just I'm so embarrassed. I feel like such a hypocrite. And he said, John, uh, hypocrite. He said, try being a marriage counselor for 35 years and being on the brink of divorce mm. the entire time mm. and going week mm. in and week out and helping other people but not being able to help yourself. Mm. Living a life formed by St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Good stuff this week from Just a Guy in the Pew. As you find out more of this week's episode, you can always catch up on anything you've missed. Go to Podcast Central at EWTN.com slash radio. As we get from this morning's Mass, let's dive into the Word on the word. Is there a certain person that you feel like taught you your faith? Not really. I mean, there's several people who have influenced me. My family, my friends, teachers. What about a favorite memory? Huh. Let me think about that. This Sunday's second reading is from the first letter to the Thessalonians, and it's all about working to pass along the faith. St. Paul explains how he and his fellow missionaries were eager to spread the gospel and thankful that the community became believers. So did you think of a memory? I did. So back when I was in middle school, my religion teacher would take my class to the empty church once a week to teach us Gregorian chants. He showed his love for God by belting out the chants, and I think it took a lot of courage for him to do that, especially in front of a group of preteens who weren't really interested. That's so cool he did that. I would have loved that in school. Yeah, even though I didn't really care for it much at the time, now I think that there's a special place in my heart for those chants. My teacher was definitely planting seeds whether he knew it or not. Oh, that's a great memory. Are you going to sing for us? Ah, no, I'm not. But I will give the challenge. This week, we challenge you to thank the person who taught you your faith. And if that person has passed away, say a prayer of thanksgiving for them and their life. And we'll see you next week here on The Word on the Word. Bye. Helping you to deepen your walk with God as we get into His Word this week. If you want to find out more on any of this week's podcast, make sure you check them out at Podcast Central at EWTN.com. That is your one-stop shop, and we'll do it again next week. And we hope that you'll share, like, subscribe, and follow so you don't miss future episodes. I'm Ace McKay. Remember to let God define who you are, and I'll see you again on Catholics Coast to Coast.